everyone. Thank you for listening to Arts District, the podcast. My name is Sterling Shea, and this is our very special birthday episode. I have been doing this podcast for one year now. Um, So today I'm going to be reviewing some of my absolute favorite, most treasured moments from the podcast and share a little insight about how this thing started and how it's going and reflect on some of the wisdom that has been shared on this podcast from our guests. So I'm really excited to get started. So as I said, I started this podcast about one year ago. And at that point, I had been in DFW for five months And I had gone to a ton of auditions and I had just closed my first show, my Dallas debut, and I was still missing that sense of connection to the community. And I was just thinking about ways that I could meet people. Um, And I was seeing a lot of people in the audition room or recognizing people from the audition room in the audience later that week, but I didn't have any connection with them and I wanted to get to know as many people as possible. And someone had brought up the idea of starting a podcast to me before. And I just thought, no, that's ridiculous. Everyone has a podcast and having a podcast certainly isn't an original idea. And talking to artists and interviewing actors is certainly not an original idea, but it really kept weighing on me after they brought it up. And I thought, well, to me, the way I'm wired, it seems much easier to ask someone to come be on your podcast than it does to ask someone to go get a coffee or a beer with you. So I thought this might be the way I go about this. I still hesitated for a long time getting started because I know myself and I have a tendency to get really fired up and passionate about a new creative project. And then I play with it for a few days and I get bored and I quit. So I thought if I'm going to invest the time and the money that comes with getting all of this equipment and getting this thing off the ground, I I really have to be invested. And I'm happy to say um, one year later, it's really paid off. It's going well. I've met so many wonderful people through doing this podcast. And what's been really bizarre is I will go be on other podcasts or I will see people um, pre-pandemic at the theater or at an event and they'll introduce me as a podcaster. And that's just so bizarre to me because it's it's a new part of my life. Um, but I think it just speaks to the impact that it's had on our little theater neighborhood. And I don't take that for granted at all. I'm really, really grateful for this part of my life. Well, I want to take us back to my very, very first interview. It's with the co-founders of Pizza Chapel Theater Company. That's August, Lindsay, and Sam. And I wanted to talk to them because 
One, I already had a relationship with them, so it was really easy. And two, I had just closed a production with Pizza Chapel and I couldn't help but take in that it was one of the most diverse productions I had ever been a part of, Um, not just in terms of race and ethnicity, but in gender expression, in level of training amongst the actors, um, even the audience. There was a wide range of socioeconomic background because they offer pay-what-you-can ticketing, and they had a very thoughtful mission statement on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and had some very poignant thoughts about tokenism within theater. So this is Pizza Chapel Theater Company. And before we start, before we move into the segment, um, I just want to point out that because this was my very first interview, I had one singular tiny USB microphone. It was the cheapest microphone that Best Buy sold. And we were all sitting on the floor in my closet, gathered around a side table. Uh, I was also editing the episodes myself at this point. So the audio quality is going to be pretty shoddy, but... um, As you'll come to find out, it gets a lot better as the podcast progressed. But here's Pizza Chapel Theater Company. Um, So there are there are a lot of theaters in in the world who (laughs) their like mission statement or their bio on their website says that they're committed to diversity and inclusion, but you go to their staff page and it doesn't really look like that, or you look at their season and it just doesn't reflect that mission statement. Um, So you guys also being represent, redefine, resist, committed to casting people who don't often get cast, um, how are you guys different from other theaters that also preach that? Um, well, we're working harder on it too. Yeah, that's we can do better. Like yeah. honestly, there's always room to grow. There's always room to grow. Um, but as a trans man, as a Latina woman, and as you know, a queer woman, that that's for us that that's set in our bylaws already. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, we don't get to just stop there, like by any mm-hmm. means. Um, we don't get to just cast, you know, the pretty white boy that shows up to play Peter Pan. Um, but those, I, we have opened our hearts and our auditions to explicitly define that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to ever look explicitly for somebody. I don't ever want to say, well, this person um, needs to be this certain kind of role. I mean, mm-hmm. if it's true to the story, like, yes, like in Marisol, we would we would have never done that show without a Latina lead. No. Um, but some sometimes it calls for it. Right. Like. Right. But, like, I don't know. Like, with Peter Pan... It didn't call for like any certain type of look anywhere. or anything. We cast people who were good in audition. We, we cast, cast every like we we cast every person that was there were there because we were like, wow, 
We love it. Mm-hmm. Like, y'all are so good. But I think that's a trap, too, because a lot of people, you they say they're committed to diversity and inclusion, but they just cast the best. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, they just cast the best, which is the same white actors who always get to work, and they're the best because they're the, they always get to work. Well, we also had this discussion during, like, casting pan mm-hmm. of who we were going to cast, and at the end of the day, we're like, this is what we do. We take chances. What like, goes on, back on to people. our yeah. roots. And so, and I think we definitely did that yeah. in casting. We mm-hmm. resist by often casting non-actors. Mm-hmm. Um, we do that a lot of the time. This show is actually, I think, the most actor show that we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Most people in the show had the show acted pan. before. Yeah. Pan, yeah. Had degrees in acting. Had degrees or in theater. acting. Or, or theater. Or professional actors. Um, mm-hmm. The show before that, we largely just casted people who were just interested in talking. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to have an avenue to speak it, even if they had never done that before. Mm-hmm. Your yeah. last show was To Whom I May Concern. Concern, which was it was um, it, it was like our riff off of the vagina monologues. We wanted to do something that was a little bit more inclusive and a little bit more contemporary. Mm-hmm. So it was this, like a vignette style show where we we just like had we had an intersectional feminist lens and we talked about our our, our casting call was like we want to hear your story mm-hmm. and we want to know your perspective and we. Um, we we specifically put in our our casting notice that we wanted to cast people who we wanted to welcome people who were queer and non-binary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked to people a lot about like yeah, so that's our mission statement. But like if they don't turn up to auditions, how do you find them? Right. And sometimes you have to let them know. Like where we're at right now, you need to let people know. Exclusively like we want you yeah. because everyone else is still going to show up. The same old like the usual suspects are going to show up. But we had two amazing actors that we work with a lot now mm-hmm. um, that showed up because we specifically said we want to cast um, gender queer and like non-binary and, and people all over the queer spectrum uh, that they showed up for that specific purpose. Yeah. <laughs> when I was at the, the pan auditions, I was definitely like, this is the most diverse casting room mm-hmm. I've ever been in. So I can tell that you guys are doing something to reach those people mm-hmm. and say, come in like you're wanted here Mm -hmm. um but i was really interested in how because either it's not happening for other theaters or they're saying it's not happening and going oh we have to cast the same people just to get whoever yeah Yeah. we're really like we're reaching out to our friends and saying hey do you sam know anyone that might want to you know audition for this Mm -hmm. go talk to those people i have a wider reach to the trans community so i get to come to those people and say hey i'm doing this thing I know you may not want to do it, but if you do, here's an avenue for mm-hmm. it. Or, and you have a really heavy influence in the music scene and in the theater world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we've gotten a lot of casting from that as well. And I like, I said this the other day, but I'm going to say it again. <laughs> I saw a post one day that said if Beyonce could find 12 black dancing violinists, you yeah. can find people. I think about that all the time. Yeah. yeah. For every show, I just think about that. Like it's been we've a couple mantras, uh-huh. but that's one of them that's like just try harder to find yeah. them. Yeah. And if it's, it's in your mission outreach. statement, if it's what you say you're about, be about it. Yeah. So, I was really nervous for that first interview, um and it definitely felt very foreign and very silly while I was setting up and ushering these grown adults into my closet to sit on the floor. But once we got caught up in the middle of the conversation, it just felt like friends sitting around the table 
and talking to each other, which is exactly what I had in mind for the podcast. But after this interview, um, I hit a wall. I was emailing a bunch of people and not getting any response. So what I pivoted to at that point was doing solo episodes and gathering all of my notes that I had taken from interning for two years at a talent agent's office in Hollywood. And so I did two episodes on what I called tips from your agent's intern. And I was still hitting a wall at that point. So I dragged my husband into our closet and made him do an interview with me about his grad school experience. And that episode is still today one of the top five like most downloaded episodes, which I think is so cool because it was at a point in the podcast where I felt very insecure and like I shouldn't be going forward. But after that, around January, I hit a break. A woman named Allie Van Duren, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but Allie was the stage manager of a production called Slide By, and she reached out to see if I would be interested in collaborating and getting them on the podcast, and I was so excited and relieved, and I finally had something to look forward to again. And then I was terrified because I had just bought this new podcasting equipment. Um, I got it secondhand off of someone I met at a networking event, and I didn't quite know how to use it. I had two new microphones, a soundboard, and what felt like four dozen sets of cords and wires, and I didn't know where everything went. I had a pretty loose understanding of how to set it up, but I wasn't totally confident yet. So I got to the interview. Um, I was there to talk to Jake Nice and Danielle Giorgio, and I was just faking it till I made it, setting up my equipment, but the audio wasn't quite working. It wasn't quite getting there. And as soon as I started to sweat, Jake was so polite and so generous and just leaned over and said, do, do you, do you mind if I help? I can offer my help. And I was like, yes, please. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. So saved the day. Um, and we're actually going to have Danielle back on in December and too bad for me. We're in a pandemic. And so I can't show off my setup skills over zoom anymore. But um, I, I definitely know how to use my equipment pretty well now, I, I'm happy to say. But I had a great interview with the creative team of SlideBy, um, and we had a really cool conversation about intimacy on stage and the emotional responsibility that comes with having tough conversations in rehearsals. So this is what Jake and Danielle had to say. For me, I come at it from a movement perspective, mm -hmm. both fight intimacy and dance. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm a classically trained dancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it's always important to come at it from a choreographic movement metered standpoint. And in anything in fight, intimacy and dance, all of them are a dance. 
of some kind, because mm -hmm. you have to understand where your hands go, where your feet go, how the body connects to another body. And so coming at, from fights, coming to fights from a dance perspective, mm -hmm. for me helps me communicate to the actors exactly what I want. So if I just looked at it from a traditional fight standpoint, which, is, which would just be hands, um, I feel like you'd miss the human aspect of it. And a lot, of, I see a lot of fight choreography on stage and it falls very flat because it feels too um, unrealistic. Yeah. And it feels in a way almost too choreographed. Yeah. And so I, when I am doing fights, I want to make it feel as in the moment spontaneous as yeah. possible. Yeah. And so I feel like using dance as my, my first language helps me get the actors to come at it from a very real standpoint. Yeah. And the same thing with intimacy. So an intimacy choreography is something that's still relatively new in the theater world, mm -hmm. like hiring an intimacy choreographer. But as a dancer, we're trained in intimacy from the first time we step into a studio. Because, yeah. um, and I'm a modern dancer and contemporary dancer, and I do a lot of improvisational work, and okay. that is intimate from the get-go. Yeah. The first thing you learn when you're doing improvisational work is how to communicate with somebody consent. Yeah. Both verbally and non-verbally. Right. And so I look at intimacy choreography from that standpoint mm -hmm. and work with actors to set up uh, standards and barriers in rehearsal that they can always access while in performance. Yeah. And so a lot of my intimacy work might feel like a dance, um, but that is because I want it to feel like how humans actually interact with Right. Yeah, I think the first time I heard about intimacy choreography was only two, two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. And just immediately I was like, wait, yeah, why don't we have that? Like you wouldn't let your emotions get the best of you when you're mm -hmm. fighting mm -hmm. on stage. Why would you let that happen? In intimacy so I think that's really cool and I'm glad more people are signing on a person to do that yeah. like a professional yeah so it poses emotional threats you know for mm -hmm. somebody who's out of control like you say has their emotions getting the best of them mm -hmm. in, a, in a romantic scene or an intimate scene I mean somebody can become really you know emotionally or psychologically uh, damaged from a, a bad interaction that way Maybe we haven't looked at that so much in the past. We've been more concerned about, oh, physically I could get hurt if my actor is out of control with a Yes, yeah. Instead of emotionally. emotionally. Like, like I could walk out of this and not want to do it again. Yeah. And that's not what you want. Right. I could experience trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how have you guys dealt? Obviously, it seems like this play has themes of gun violence. Um, how have you guys dealt with the themes of the play and you know I was reading that there's themes of suicide and kind of not not being the person that you thought you were going to be later on in life mm -hmm. um, I'm just interested in like the kinds of conversations you've had with your actors we've had a lot of conversation <laughs> um, I, I, I mean I have to first give credit to Thomas for um, being so tactful about mm -hmm. the way he wrote about this stuff and also at the same time, not being tactful at all. I mean, being purposeful and just sort of throwing these sort of blatant, I, I think Thomas really wants you to reassess your relationship to things like, like you're saying, teen suicide or gun violence or even the presence of a gun in school in the first place. I think Thomas wants you to really take a look at that 
And one of the ways he does that is through humor throughout the play. I mean, I think it's a, I, I keep pitching it to people as a dark comedy yeah. or a satirical comedy. And people are sort of amazed by that because I say, oh, it's a dark comedy about, uh, you know, a substitute teacher a week after Columbine. Yeah. And everybody goes, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's, you know, so I just have to say, I think Thomas set us up for success yes. in dealing with these sensitive subjects through a mix of suspense and humor. Okay. Um, but we've had a lot of conversations with the actors, especially in our first couple weeks of rehearsal. I mean, people are bringing personal stories that they relate to. Mm -hmm. People are using sort of um, maybe more broadly known statistics and information about um, certain types of people in the play. Or like if you talk about like, you know, what, what a typical school shooter does or doesn't do. Mm -hmm. People have looked to that kind of thing for information. And we've talked, you know, my goal is to try to center as much of our conversation on the script and pulling information out of the script from whatever's there on the page and not letting our outside, you know, biases, mm -hmm. be they good or bad, those are still judgments that we bring in as individuals and we're trying to sort of create a new story explicitly from the text. Mm -hmm. Boy, oh boy, if you guys go back and listen to that original episode of Slide By, there is a lot of really good conversation in there, but I butchered it when it came to editing the audio. You can hear buzzing, beeping, feedback. The volume is all wonky. There's like really harsh cuts in the middle of speaking. Um, it, it's just not my strong suit. So shortly after that episode was cranked out, I partnered with my now producer, Carl. He owns an awesome company called The Podcast Engineer, which is why all of our new episodes sound so wonderful and streamlined. So, um, this is just a shout out for Carl who does amazing work on this podcast. And if you guys want to check him out, his website is always in the show notes. So check him out if you know someone that is starting a podcast soon. My next favorite moment. And when I went back to listen to this episode, I ended up listening to it from beginning to end because it was so valuable. It's our Parent Artist Advocacy League episode with Lauren LeBlanc. Um, I went into this and I go into every interview with at least a few talking points or bullet points that I want to hit. But the PAL organization was relatively new in DFW and I am not a parent and I did not know what I was going to talk about. Um, and I was really sweating it going into this episode, but Lauren is such an amazing speaker and she had so much heart for our community and so much wisdom to share and had such a vision for the future of being a parent artist 
in DFW. And so it's easily one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. So this is what Lauren had to say on being a parent artist. At least for my part, I have a tendency to catastrophize. I have a tendency to, um, to explore all the ways things could go wrong in my head and try to prepare for those contingencies, right? To prepare plans. Um, I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, <laughs> my husband, my poor husband, <laughs> uh, who's, who's so supportive in every way. Um, and I, I was, I had gone, I'd gotten up early one morning and gone downstairs, pour myself a cup of coffee. And I came back up and I was sitting by the bed while he was still asleep. And when he woke up, he looked at me just kind of staring. <laughs> and he was like, uh, and before I could even say good morning, I was like, I'll never take piano lessons now. <laughs> and he was like, what? And I was like, well, I mean, this baby's going to come and I'll never take piano lessons. Yeah. <laughs> now, why that was the thing. That sounds um, like me. <laughs> what's funny is you have all of these ideas for the way things are going to be. You have all these ideas for the kind of parent you're going to be or how it's going to impact you. And you can't know what you can't know, right? Um, for me, I, I guess to speak, maybe I'm speaking to the artists who are about to become parents or thinking about becoming parents and terrified as to what that will do parenthood or caretaking to their careers in the arts, as it were. Um, And I guess I would say this as an encouragement, I would not have my career in the arts if I had not become a parent. I, um, I, I left my college, I abandoned my or dropped my scholarship in college and decided I was going to do something that was going to help the world because theater at the time, this is a very narrow mindset, but I didn't think that it was serving anyone but me. I didn't Mm -hmm. feel like you could love something so much and get so much out of it. And the world could too. Uh, I thought in a very binary way at the time. I understand now theater does serve the world, but at the time I didn't. And so I didn't do, I was not on stage for nine years, basically my entire twenties. And so, um, we moved all over the place. And for my entire twenties for nine years, I didn't step on a stage. And, uh, and so I sort of thought that part of my life was over. And I used to sort of, I never really addressed it, but I used to think, Oh, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. And I think the thing that gets in your way just in life, but certainly in parenthood too, is, um, deciding what things are before they happen you know, having preconceived notions about things, kind of like I'll never take piano lessons again, because the surprise ending is that my 11 year old's been taking piano since she was six. And I sit down with her and we play and I, I've learned with her. So Mm. I kind of did take piano lessons (laughs) and because of her and because I left my job as a teacher and went to that one community theater audition, I'm an equity actor now. And I'm uh, leading the charge for PAL and DFW, and none of that would have happened yeah. if I hadn't become a parent, and if I hadn't said yes to things that matter, and if I hadn't tried to make it work um, when it when it felt important. So, is it hard? Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. It's um, you know, everywhere you are, you feel like you need to be somewhere else. You know, when you're home, you miss the stage. When you're on stage, you worry about your kids and 
Um, but that's true for parents all over the world in whatever pursuit they're doing. And art should be no different. Um, when I became a parent, my thoughts got deeper and my voice got stronger mm. and I had more to say and I had a better perspective. And I think it made me a hell of a better actor because my experience was richer than it had been before. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of a person now than I was before I had kids. Ah, such a good word. I really think that Lauren should do voice work for that Calm app, that app that you like fall asleep to while celebrities talk to you because I could just listen to her speak life into me for hours. This next segment is by Ryan Matthew Smith, and he told me an incredible story that really took me by surprise about losing his eyesight while he was designing costumes and directing shows for the stage. And I thought it was really inspiring to hear his tenacity and hear how when he was faced with this incredibly difficult challenge, he immediately pivoted and learned how to overcome it. So here's Ryan Matthew Smith. And at that time, I learned that I was losing my eyesight. I was having a health problem. And uh, I had a degenerative eye disease. And I had severe head trauma um, when I was four days old. Wow. I was dropped on my head. And I had my skull had fractured and my brains had to be pushed back into my head. And then subsequently, when I was a teenager, I had some bad car accidents and some more head trauma. And that on top of the fact that I had was growing dense cataracts over both eyes, I was losing my vision uh, very quickly. That sort of lit a fuel under me and sort of uh, perpetuated a lot of my drive to do things and see things and experience things before I could, I could no longer see them. Mm. That sort of took me on an Alaskan adventure. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, so I left Dallas and I literally drove with a, a best friend of mine to Alaska. And it took us seven days driving about 13 hours a day. And I was going to the University of Anchorage to uh, teach kids, um, babies. They were like ages uh, three to 18 in a, in a children's program that was sanctioned through the university. Um, I went there to uh, design costumes and to teach and direct. And I got to have an Alaskan adventure. So that sort of took me out of Dallas. Mm -hmm. And then when I left there, I went to LA after that. Um, I drove down to LA and I, um, I started working as a production designer and a costume designer uh, in film. And I kind of fell into that uh, because when I landed there in film, as you might know, like everything is very, you do one job and that's all you do. Mm. And when I got to LA, because of training and my background in theater, the advice that, oh, well, this one artist can do so many jobs. And, and instead of hiring a crew of 10, I can hire one of him. That's sort of what, how I got my, my start in film uh, was sort of making myself a commodity. Mm. So during that period, I was losing, I was gradually losing my eyesight. So 
I lost all vision in my left eye completely. And um, I was quickly losing my right eye. And I didn't tell anyone that I was going through this. It was something that I sort of uh, suffered silently because I didn't want to be a liability on set to anyone. Yeah. But I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to give up the art, so to speak. Because at that point, it was really all of my identity at that point was built into being an artist and who I was as, as an artist. So I, I remember like when I was on set for movies, I would just like pick my feet up really high so that I wouldn't trip on any wires or anything. Right. Um, oh. As I was losing the vision, I had to sort of uh, reteach myself distance and color through texture. It was a really interesting um, process. That was the first thing I thought is it, designing is such a visual medium. So like, how were you adjusting to that coming on? It hit me that I was basically having to redefine who I was as a person, because as an artist, we are what we create. We are, you know, what do we do with our hands is so important. It was through this that I sort of learned and came to the realization that eyesight had very little to do with vision as an artist. It's where I learned that I was, I could do so much more than I was uh, allowed to do. It's when I started writing. It's when I started directing. It's when I started producing. It's when I started thinking, if I'm an artist and I don't have my eyes, what do I do to stay a vital part of this business? Those things I could do without having eyes, without having eyesight. So that's how I learned how to push myself in those directions and and study business and and learn the art of producing and your own work and and creating your own work and um, being a driving force behind who you are and what you do and holding yourself accountable for for creating something unique because you are who you are yeah <laughs> and you have to survive I mean it's the it's yes the yes workers you have to keep working you have to keep uh, striving and promoting and moving on to what's next. When my eyes completely went, I came back to Dallas and uh, I got, it was like a two, it was a, the whole thing was like a four-year process. At the time, there was something called the Division of the Blind here in Dallas and it no longer exists. But at the time, if uh, you could prove that you were number one blind and two could be rehabilitated into the workforce, that this uh, division would pay for your surgeries and your doctor's appointments, your medications. And the first year I moved back to Dallas, I was denied. And then I had to reapply. And basically, you know, healthcare in America, you have to get worse before you can get help. So I literally had to go be considered completely blind until I could receive any financial help. And luckily, you know, after the end of the four years, I was approved and now I can see. Yeah, I had a transplant in both eyes and then I had cataract surgery to remove cataracts that had grown in that were about the size of two white jelly beans uh, on both my eyes. And then I started working, just got right back to work. In fact, at the time, (laughs) at the time, I had two shows that I had designed here in Dallas that were running. I remember the nurse had taken the band, they did one eye at a time. So when the nurse had taken the bandage off of one of my eyes, his scrubs erupted into this color green that I had never seen before. No way. It was like life in cartoon motion. I was like, is this, this is what the 
world has been seeing. Like I was so excited and angry at the same time because like I cannot believe that I've noticed green before. Yeah. It was wild. And I had two shows that I had designed that were running. I went to go see both of them just to kind of see what my work looked like with this new thing and and they looked good. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, Ryan was such a fun person to talk to. He is so respected in our community as a director and as an artist. And we went on later in that episode to talk more about visibility, not just in literal terms of eyesight and artistic vision, but seeing people that represent his cultural background or seeing people who look like him on stage or on screen is very, very rare, if not just unheard of right now. And all of those challenges coupled together did not stop him from pursuing his passion for the art and his pursuit of success. And um, I just carried that with me for a long time. I really love that episode with Ryan. So my final favorite moment that I want to share with you is from when we did our Tarot for Theater episode. I brought on my friend Mariah Claiborne, um, who is a tarot reader. And if you didn't hear the full episode, you should absolutely go listen to it. It was just this wacky idea that I had. And I reached out to her and said, hey, is it possible to do community-wide tarot, like a tarot reading, but for a community at large or an industry at large? And she said, sure. And I knew it was like a big risk and that people might not be receptive to it, but it ended up so cool. And, um, a lot of things clicked for me and um, it very quickly became one of our most popular, most downloaded episodes. So I think everyone really liked it. So um, here's a little moment from that episode. For the future, we have a seven of swords. And when I say the future, I mean, what's a developing concern you may have like what is something that is you know that is coming up for you in the future that you might be worrying about well this card is actually a warning against dishonesty and against turning a blind eye oh my okay 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 no no tell me tell me what you're feeling tell me what you're feeling (laughs) i mean i could go over i'm gonna let you finish and then i want to review Okay. 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 Let's do that. Okay. We can do that. We can do that. Okay. It is a warning against dishonesty and turning a blind eye. And again, I think this goes back to activism in in a way and staying aware of deception that is being, you know, that's coming from all sides. Like I know that there are some places in Texas, for example, and in DFW theater, I'm not judging them. I won't pass judgment, but that are still doing productions right now and saying that they can keep their actors safe, you know, and that might not necessarily be true. That might be dishonest of them, you know, and might be in their own self-interest. And so this is a warning against turning a blind eye to things. It indicates that you or other people may be pressured 
to be dishonest about things right now. Like to be dishonest about where you're at, to be dishonest about what you think about the future. I'm not sure why, but if something feels off about a petition, about a GoFundMe, about an opportunity, now is the time to really not ignore that. Mm. You know, if you have been asked to do a production that you've somehow, you know, someone's managing to produce something right now and something feels off, don't do it. Don't pressure yourself into making those choices because everyone's being pressured into dishonesty right now. And what I mean by that is sometimes people are even lying about how they're doing. You know, it's just in our nature in a way. And the more we come up against like this COVID era and everything like that, I think the more people are pressured to have the right answers, but not necessarily waiting for them to be the most truthful answers. Like they're just going with whatever to get whatever done. And that's, that's hard, but you have to stay aware of this in the future as we rebuild the industry. It might be, you know, empty promises made by, by you know, the theater industry, you know, saying they're going to be more inclusive and, you know, listening to people and things like that. But it's just a beware type of sign for the future. I think that is a good place to end it. We are looking forward to the future. 2021 cannot come soon enough. Um, I, again, just want to say I'm so grateful to be in a position to host this podcast in just the one year that we have been recording. We have done a feature with Voyage Dallas We collaborated with Voyage Dallas to find our next guest. So that episode will be out in the coming months. We received a grant from the Live Theater League of Tarrant County. And in March, when I lost my job and it didn't look like the podcast was going to move forward, you guys totally came through for me and donated and told your friends about this podcast and I was able to secure the funds to power through. I'm really, really grateful for that. We have had guests invite us to their opening nights, invite us to their press nights. It's truly just a really exciting season of my life to be able to do this. So again, thank you for telling people about this podcast, for liking, sharing, subscribing, hyping me up on Instagram. As always, if you know someone who should be on this podcast or you think you would be the perfect guest for us, send me an email, send me a DM. We will get you on. Follow us on Instagram. There's lots of cute dog photos of my pup, Tiresias. Yes, he is named after the blind prophet in Greek mythology. He's our spokes dog. All right. We have two more episodes this year. We will be back in December. So have a great week. Bye-bye.